0: Hello, and welcome once again to Let's Talk About Public Code, a show where we invite members of the community that really are working with public code. My name is Jan Einali, and I'm a code steward at the Foundation for Public Code. And joining me today is a colleague of mine, Boris van Hoytema. Hello, Boris.
1: Hey, Jan. Uh, yeah, what a what a great way to start this new year. I'm, I'm very excited for this episode of YouTube show slash podcast.
0: Yeah, me too. And nice to have you back here on this 11th episode. In the conversation today, we are joined with a person who has a long and a lot of experience of working with open source in Europe.
1: Yeah, so today we're joined by Gijs uh, who is an open source policy advisor at the European Commission. Very inspiring person, has always been very inspiring also to, to the work that I've been doing. Uh, and I've definitely also learned a lot from what he's been doing.
0: All right, so let's bring you on. Hello, guys. Hello. Hi.
2: Thank you for those words, uh, Boris. It's actually uh, much the other way around as well. Just uh, a few hours ago, I was um, leaving through the, um, the standard of the Foundation for Public Code and recommending one of our projects that they take a very good look at it when they uh, take the next step into going from a, a very small internal project to an open source project.
0: That's a super positive note to start on, and uh, nice to have you here. <laughs> so you have been working with the, the European Commission and Open Source for a long time. How would you say that the awareness in the different parts, the relevant parts of the Commission or the organization, how has that evolved over time?
2: Okay, uh, that's a, a good question to open this show with. I think it would be cool to describe to the people how big the the commission is, or how multifaceted it is, or that's something they should, they should realize. So I, I currently work for the commission's open source program office, but we're housed at the, let's say the ministry for IT, the director general for informatics, DIGIT for short, which is just one of a lot of director generals and all of these director generals have a task. So there's one that works on transport. There's one that works on competition, etc. And DIGIT is sort of the in-house IT service provider. And here, open source has been around almost forever. It has been around since open source has been around because IT people touch everything, right? So they like to, to play with things. So we like to say that the history of, of open source of the commission started two decades ago when in the data center, which we have two of them, people started using the LAMP stack for, well, okay, making, making wikis and doing their own little things and keeping notes and to-dos and. But um, it quickly expanded from a request from colleagues at DG IMSO at the time, I think it was called, now DG Connect, to say, we're working on a database. We need to keep track of chemicals that go into research something to do with funding for bioinformatics, bio, biomedical things. Can you help us with... And then they said, yeah, sure. Uh, here's a, a Linux Apache MySQL PHP thing. Start filling it in. And before we knew it, this LAMP stack thing started taking over the uh, mostly other types of Unix servers in the data center. And now we're at the position where I think 75% of all the hosts in the data centers at the commission are Linux-based. So that's the data center. After like five, six years, people started looking back. That's when we actually wrote the first generation of an open source strategy which is interesting because this is how it works, right? People start looking back saying we should write it down because there's new people coming in. We should explain it to them. What are we doing? And then they realize, okay, we're doing all these data center things. We have this infrastructure layer, but we're also starting to develop our own little tools. And so we're starting to use open source instead of just install it and then run it. And we're trying to make, we're adapting it to our own uh, situation. So that became a second layer. And then the first strategy, that was more or less, this is where we are. We're using it and we're making modifications, which we're implementing for ourselves. And another five years later, they realized that now open source was almost everywhere in the desktop as well. VLC, Firefox, LibreOffice, it's not used like everywhere, but we can all download it, install it on our laptops and use it or install it on our workstations and use it. VLC you'll see in a lot of places, Firefox is used by a lot of people. There's plenty of PDF kind of tools and picture edit tools, GIMP and stuff. And so the next version of the strategy said, oh yeah, we're also doing all these things on the desktop. And another five, three, five years later, people realized that they were ready to start contributing back to open source projects. Now we're very close to where I come in because um, there were legal barriers and there were organizational barriers to make this transition to contributing back to open source possible. So that was, it's a difficult process. And so the, the most recent version of the open source strategy, which was published in the October two years ago, 2020, decided the main thing it says that it would do is remove the legal barriers and remove the organizational barriers. And so that's where we are now. That's, that's what the OSPO was created for. That's what the OSPO was tasks to do. Uh, and we're making good progress with that.
1: And uh, guys, I have so many questions, but like, can you explain to me a bit what an OSPO is and uh, maybe like how it will work in the European Commission?
2: Yes, I will, I will give it a shot. So I think we're also discovering what an OSPO is. I'll be honest with you. We started playing with the name of an organization that would carry out the list of tasks that we had Realized. Okay, so we've looked at what happens with open source in the commission. What needs to be done? What are the wishes of all of our directors? What are the wishes of all of our developers? And we sorted them, ranked them into, I think, a list of ten things. And uh, and then we said we need to make somebody the um, we need to make somebody responsible. Somebody needs to own this headache, and start executing it. And then we thought, so what shall we call it? We can call it a center. And then people said, no, we don't call things centers because before you know it, they'll think it's uh, you know it has to be uh, independent or something. And, uh, and then we looked around and of course, there's the to-do group and there were other people. And uh, uh, I think there were organizations by Google. And so we came up with OSPO, we just stole it from them. But that doesn't mean that we were completely aware of what uh, entails an OSPO. But I think I've described it now, it's the, it's the owner of the headache of making an organization transition in our case, towards being a, an organization that works very well with open source. The aim is to make open source part of the lifestyle of how the Commission does its IT.
0: All right. And in December, the European Commission, you adopted a new policy. I think it's like it's a decision on open source. What impact do you think that will have in short, but also in long term, that decision being taken?
2: So what is interesting is that the open source strategy is a communication from the commission to the commission. It's, a, it's not a law, it's not a rule, but it's the way that the college of commissioners, they have heard all the argumentations. There has been a debate in the DGs. And this thing has been pushed back and forth. Everybody has tried to uh, chip in. Uh, and then they say, okay, so we've heard all this. We re- somebody has written it down for us. This is what we think you guys, we should do as a commission. And that strategy, that's good because open source policy was something that was done a Digit. It was something that was written on paper. As I said, it looked backwards, tried to write it down for the next generation. And now we have a a mandate to do a bunch of things that are not just only for Digit, but they will also be valid for other DGs that want to do this. And there's plenty of other DGs that do software development. And some of it is done by Digit or with help of Digit. But some of them, they say, yeah, we have our own team or we hired somebody else. And they also want to do uh, a lot on open source. And so they can use the same strategy to move forward. Now, that strategy, while analyzing the organization, realized there are two big barriers. One is it's very difficult for the commission to publish its source code and related information as open source because we have rules in place that date from a long time ago. I keep saying the 70s, but it might not be true. That kind of lock us down. They say you have to ask for permission to share IPR because the goal was let's sell this IPR and recoup some of the costs. Now for software that has never worked and nobody ever attempted it, or few things attempted it, and a lot of projects wanted to share it, make more sense. And there is a policy in place at the commission for sharing information, the open data directive. Now the open data directive is for the member states, but there is a similar directive for the commission. And so we basically said, the open data directive says, this doesn't apply to software, And we said, let's use the same method, but now apply it to software. And by making it a commission decision, it has become commission law. And so it does two things. A, it removes the legal barrier. So now if a project says we want to go open source, there's a few little things they need to do. I say little, they're not entirely little. They need to register their IPR so that we are aware, somebody is aware that this is going outside. And then it would be really great, so we're making it mandatory, that they do a security check. So we don't share stuff that is immediately hackable, because that would be like, you know, that wouldn't be a good thing to uh, to do. And so that's one thing. It has made that part easier. And the other thing it does is that it lets commission software developers, and that a lot of those are externals, contribute to existing open source tools. So we pull in open source all the time. Uh, and then we work with that. And you see, oh, there's a typo. There's something in the documentation. I have a feature. I have a bug fix, whatever. For those improvements, we also every time had to ask permission, which meant nobody ever did that. Or we had a few cases where people said, ah, well, I'll do it in the weekend because then it's my time. And so now we have this, this, that's gone. They can just contribute to fix. And if it's a small module, nobody's going to ask. So go ahead. Now that doesn't mean that starting in December, all of a sudden there was this flood of open source coming out of the commission. And that would be really great, but that's not how it goes. I think it will start with a small trickle and hopefully it will become bigger and bigger over time. Nice. So for us, that was a really important milestone. It was one of the biggest things on our task list and we were very happy that it, um, that it came out.
1: It took quite a bit of time. And Of course, like the commission isn't like completely alien to open source, as you explained, you, you use a lot of open source. And a few years back, we saw these two projects called Fossa and Fossa2 where the commission would do like security audits of key open source code bases, but also there was some like funding involved for some projects. Does the way that you now have your attitude that you now have within the commission, has that grown also from those kind of projects or is that very separate?
2: No, I don't know. They're totally related. They're related in several ways. I'll try to explain. Hopefully I won't run out of steam there. So FOSA and FOSA2 were, they came to the commission thanks to the European Parliament, that in the, in the slipstream of the Heartbleed bug, realized that we have, Houston, we have a problem here. And like everybody else, right, the Linux um, Foundation with their, um, their security project and Google and other organizations, they all started realizing that we're disregarding some of our building blocks here. And the Parliament said, commission, you should do a pilot to try and figure out if in the open source tools that you are already relying on, you have similar gaping holes that need to be fixed that aren't already fixed by others. And that's the pilot. And this is an official process. So the the Parliament cuts a piece of the commission budget and says, you're going to get it, but you have to do this for it. So we're making you do the FOSA project instead of using it for something else. And after a pilot, you can do a preparatory action. We'll give you a bit more money will expand your scope, will give you a bit more work. And after the preparatory action, if this whole thing worked, if the pilot was successful and the preparatory action was successful, it should become a permanent part of your toolbox. And so I think we are more or less there where the things that come out of FOSA 2 like bug bounties and hackathons are gradually becoming part of the toolbox of Digit. So we have the security department are very keen on using the experience of the OSPO, of my OSPO colleagues, on bug bounties and hackathons, secure some of the tools that they realize need to be more secure. At least they need to be audited in various ways. And the OSPO and other departments are working together to continue the bug bounties and hackathons. We did one on Yitsi this year, we did one on Moodle, or we are going to do one on Moodle. There's quite a few, but it's colleagues of mine and I, I'm involved, but I'm not aware of all these, so I can't know everything.
0: Well, it sounds nice that it actually becomes a part of everyday work.
2: Yeah. You know, it sounds a bit boring, but uh, once you're in it, it's actually quite fascinating. The big achievement of the FOSA and FOSA2 projects was that we were able to change the procurement so that we could actually do bug bounties and hackathons. Previously, it was just not legally possible because it works like this. You have budget. And at the end of the project, the budget seems to be, it must be gone. You cannot give it back because then like, now what? And so my colleagues had to work with the procurement department to try and change the rules in such a way that we could have, let's say, 100,000 euros for bug bounties with the potential that 10K came back because it wasn't used. No bugs found, no bounties paid. So, yep. and then we could reuse that money for a hackathon or we could reuse the, et cetera. So... Now we have that in place, so we're giving it to other people. So you just copy this and you run it and here's the, uh, the template and uh, here's the text, you can go for it.
1: And you might spend less.
2: Yeah, that's an interesting, Boris, you're making, an interesting, you're making me go on an interesting tangent here because one of the things that open source has always promised is that it's cheaper. When I, I used to report on, on public services around the European Union experimenting with open source and, for example, the French and the was always very loud and clear about if you do this, you'll reduce your, your TCI or your TCO by a lot. It is like 25% or 50% or sometimes 70% cheaper. Total cost send. of ownership. Yeah. And, um, and so it's, it's something in the back of my mind. We need to also show that it is cheaper. Though it's not the driver. There are so many other drivers that are equally, if not more
1: important. But um, it should become clear that open source is just a cheaper way of doing things. And, and that cheaper way of doing things, of course, also really comes from working together at scale, like having multiple parties involved in one project, like code being reused, for instance. Yes. You're pooling
2: resources instead of each inventing your own little wheel. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So building on that, like in your opinion, what should member states do to be good contributors in the European open source ecosystem?
2: Yeah. <sighs> If I had the answer to that, of course we have. There's plenty of people at the Commission who have been working on that issue f- also for almost two decades. So the you have the the EDA EDA BC ISA and ISA Square and now interoperable Europe program. So those were that's the sequential uh, new names for them have been looking at this for 20 years, uh, trying to get the member states to work together around tools that they would all work with, that they would all use. So the the ISA Square program now called Interoperable Europe um, has an important set of solutions that are reusable, doesn't always say that they are actually really used, but some of them are by the member states. Another important example for this is the uh, Connecting Europe facility. A lot of that is done in software development by Digit. But a lot of that is decided by other DGs for transport, for okay, for transport, for trade, competition, making a, a digital single market. Um, there's lots of policies being put in place, and there's IT solutions that help achieve that. And all the SEF building blocks, all the Connecting Europe Facility building blocks, are shared as open source. Now that's not often promoted, but these have long-term consequences. So. Um, There's two examples that I use. One is the e-signature part. So signing documents electronically from one member state to another member state or from, I don't know, doing your filing, say, uh, reports to some project in the commission that needs to know for the 27 member states. Um, All that is signed through software that is basically open source. Companies are using those libraries to create solutions that sign documents for their clients, completely commercial (laughs) solutions, uh, notorial notaries and so on lawyers and they're all using this tool that was developed as open source and shared through sef uh, another example which i find cool is that almost everything that has to do with filing online the import export things so if you're importing stuff into the eu or if you're exporting stuff from the eu you're supposed to tell this to your government and the government is then reporting it on to the commission so that you get uh, a harmonized view all that is done through open source components. And it means that almost every company in Europe is now touching online services that are based on open source tools. It's pretty cool, but it's awesome, and we don't really see it.
0: Is there also any sort of particular areas or ideas for code bases that doesn't exist yet that you would like to see the member states collaborate on or prioritize over other types of things that you see, Oh. There's a huge gap in potential here.
2: Okay, so uh, you're making me think of something else. And you were talking about the the FOSA and FOSA 2 pilot and preparatory action. And the new European Parliament has again decided that there should be a pilot, part one of this hopefully three-step process, that focuses on some of the lessons learned in FOSA 2, making sure that the member states build lists of the open source tools that they are already creating, And that we try to bring that all together in one sort of mega list or, you know, figure out a way to exchange all this stuff. And then also, once you have that, look at that list and figure out which of those components that you are relying on are not already covered by security audits or have security teams behind them or need some kind of backup, whatever, to make it sustainable because we have, for example, 20 public services across the member states using a certain library and nobody is looking at it. And it hasn't been updated in 10 years and there is maybe a problem with it. So then this project should maybe try to fix that problem. That didn't answer your question, but it did answer a question that Boris uh, asked uh, 10 minutes ago.
1: It's okay. As long as you keep telling us all these brilliant things, then I think we'll be fine. Good.
2: So one of the things that is really difficult for and your, your introduction video on the uh, Foundation Public codes explains it brilliantly, by the way, when you talk about terroir of software. And that's just what it is. So we have, there's a fantastic project in France, Open Marie, which is a stack of applications that you can use if you're a French service public in a municipality level. And it's written by a bunch of people focused on the beautiful town of Arles in the south of France. It's used by Marseille, which is like the third or the fourth biggest city in France. But it doesn't really make sense for, I don't know, people in the Netherlands or Denmark to then say, let's go to Maria and use their tool because the legal context is so different. Don't even attempt it. So finding cross-border examples is actually not that easy. And one of the, one of the risks of building a mega catalog of catalogs of all the solutions made available as open source by all these European member states is that you, you'll get a list that is full of stuff that is shared, but it's also full of stuff that is never reused. There is, a, there is a really a difference between reusing and sharing. And I think sharing is level one, and it's a really good goal because you need to start somewhere and it's very practical and it will get reused, but maybe not in the way you expected it.
0: That's a good point.
2: And then we can make a superset out of this list and say these are the tools that are actually being reused across the member states. These are probably components, basic building blocks or uh, libraries, encryption libraries, e-signature libraries, file exchange libraries, things like that. But I don't expect there will be many systems like Laos, which is now reused by Germany and reused by Spain and used by the commission and the council to draft legal texts. Okay, that... It's one thing that you would think all member states do this. And I think there is interest from a lot of other
1: member states, but they all have their own systems in place. And government is not known for being like quick to respond to new things. Ah, yeah,
2: quick. So uh, I think IT, maybe it's not just isolated IT, but IT people are usually very impatient because you realize this is faster and more efficient. Why don't they all do this? Uh, I have that same tendency, but uh, yeah, this is, you know, Change is hard, and it takes time.
0: Following up on that a little bit, like, th- sometimes there are some unavoidable bureaucracy in, in public organizations. But do you have any tips for public organizations that want to work with open source that they can just start doing, like they won't require a lot of administrative overhead or decisions or cost? What's a good first step?
2: But that's actually the brilliant part about open source, right? You don't need to procure it. That has always been a bit of a surprise to many people that work in public service. What? I don't have to procure it? No, it has zero cost. So why would you? Of course, it's the additional services around the product that you might uh, want to procure. And so you can just download it, install it, and run it. Go with it. It's fine. That is one of the things that made this transition also in Digit from the data center where they downloaded it and installed it to all of a sudden we have a whole staircase of things that we have achieved so far. And the latest goal is to become a, a real member of the open source community and start getting involved and, and being part of organizations and help them road mapping their solution because we're using it. and We're relying on it. In the Fossa 2 project, we did a hackathon on Kafka, Apache Kafka, which is used all over the commission. It's used all over, over, all over Digit. So it's very important for us that Kafka is a, is a sustainable tool.
1: So, so to some degree, you say open source, it's going to happen anyways, better get with it.
2: I think it has, it has already happened. I think you will not find a public service anywhere in the European union, I will not say world that doesn't use open source. If they don't, they will be really odd ducks.
1: They might not use computers.
2: And there is a few that say they don't, and then they do it anyway. So, I mean, you can't, run, you can't run anything these days without open source. You start a new project, 80% of the code will end up being open source because why would you write it all again? It was there already. It makes no sense. makes no financial sense, makes no, makes no business sense. All the businesses are doing it. So, um, Which is also why it's important that governments have knowledge of open source because, okay, you can have your developers pull it all in and start working on it and it's fine and great, but you need to have in place a system to figure out, does it expose us to weird legal risks? No, probably not, but let's just look at it for sure. Do we introduce security things? We had the uh, NMP issue. We have the Log4j issue. You know, Governments need to look at it as well as companies. So, and Every CIO needs to have somebody that is awake on things open source and tells him or her, okay, Houston, something needs to be done. We have, a, we have an issue coming up or we have some weaknesses in the way we do uh, things open source and here's how we're going to fix it. So that's, it's a a maturity step. It will happen all over the EU, for sure.
1: And how does that step, because you've illustrated very clearly that it is completely natural if you have computers in your public administration, you're going to have open source. And if you have open source, you're going to have to do, like, make sure that it's secure and all those kind of things.
2: Um, As you do for proprietary as well, right? There's, in that sense, not really a big difference, but... It gives you a few extra options, right?
1: So, But what, like open source is ostensibly different in that this contribution is also very much part of this process. How do you make that happen?
2: Yes, that is really, and that's where an organization needs to grow. They need to become aware of it and then they need to find a way to answer the question. It will be different for every organization and it might even be different for every project. Your teams need to be aware of such things. We have a team that is building an internal search engine, which is really, really good. It's starting to find results. It's starting to show results. I use it almost every day. We're planning to make this, where we have been building on top of um, software components, we're, we're tra- and we're, we're preparing to make these things available as open source now, now that we have all the rules in place. But that project can be surprised by a change in license in one of the open source components that goes from a completely normal open source license to a, what they would like to call an open source license. And the whole rest of the open source world says that's not an open source license because now we can't live with it. So this will happen all the time. And so they, the developers might not immediately know now what, but you need to have legal experts in place somewhere that can help you navigate that problem. Now the commission has an IPR department that we can put in touch with the enterprise search uh, team, and so these things can get fixed.
1: Yeah. So you're saying like not allowing your own staff to contribute to projects is even a risk for you?
2: I I didn't say that, but um, uh, I think
1: I'm inferring that. Yes. Yeah. No but I um I quite like your like but the commission
2: realizes is completely uh, is completely clear for the commission that it is much cheaper in the long term and even cheaper in the cho- in the short term it's better more sustainable if our developers can work with the open source community and if our bug fixes do not need to be patched backwards all the time we can just bring it to upstream make it part of the official distribution and it's that's better for them. It's better for us. It's cheaper for both sides. Everybody wins. There is no lose there. So,
0: And since you mentioned the decision again, is there something specific that you're looking for that's happening already in 2022? And if there's things that you cannot announce yet, that's of course all right. But is there something that you're looking forward to that is already public?
2: Well, I'm looking forward to that very much, but there's something I can't really say too much about. But we're, we've been... The decision mentions that we're trying to make sure that the software that the commission is going to share as open source is going to be easy to find and that's where that's one of the things that me and colleagues are working on to get that uh, launched soon ish so i'd like to keep it a bit vague because otherwise you know it's all right but that's super exciting if that happens
0: when it happens i'm excited that you're excited
2: and there's a lot of paperwork involved there's a lot of paperwork involved so uh, Because it's still a public uh, service, right? So I I can't go out there and just, you know... Yes. You know, buy a domain and install some software and get it going. (laughs) um,
1: Are there maybe other projects inside of uh, the European Commission that you do think, like, oh, these are great? Like, I would love to talk about these. Well,
2: one of the tasks is to create a lifestyle around, based on the principles of open source inside the Commission. What we currently see is that development teams, they create a new repository on their projects on our internal source uh, store. And then by default, the permission to read and write is to the team. That's like five, maybe 10 people. So in May last year, we changed that default. Now, if you create a project, the settings are, it's open for everybody that has access to that system, unless you, know, you don't want it, and then you can just close it. But we have a lot of projects, and I won't say how many, we have a lot of projects that, that haven't made that switch yet. Because, in many cases, they have things in their code that are meant for their team and not meant for maybe the colleagues next door. It's not like they're teasing their colleagues, but it's like you know, passwords to the database and stuff like that. So we need a solution for our secrets management. And once we have that in place, we can gently nudge projects to open their code to their colleagues. And this is only the inside the commission part. And so that's, it's, it's, a, it's a big list of projects and it will take quite a bit of time to get all of them to maybe switch or consider switching. And at the same time, while we're pruning that list of projects, we might come across gems that need to be open source. We might come across gems that are already totally ready to go open source that just haven't managed to push their code to the outside repository yet. And then we'll help them. And I'm I'm super excited to see that happen. It's also a lot of work. I tried a few of those uh, over the summer when things quieted down and so I, I called developers out of the blue i called project leaders out of the blue across the commission and they were very happy to uh, to talk and they were very happy to hear that the uh, open source was was going on the move again there was sort of a second wave of of open source enthusiasm um, but i haven't seen any of these projects make that step and switch to the open open source yet but it will come there's also uh, we're working with the um, with a team of people that tries to manage new projects being proposed to check, okay, so you're asking for this solution, but actually two years ago, colleagues in another DG already have something like that. Maybe we should try to reuse their tool or at least reuse that process, trying to rationalize new projects from becoming a lot of new new projects and a lot of new wheels. Um, we're working with them to start asking questions about open source in these project proposals. And that will make a difference. And this decision, the the one that we announced in December, will touch most projects within five years. Because all these projects are evaluated every so many years when it's time to renew the budget, when it's time to overhaul the libraries, when it's time to add something new. And then the people will say, okay, so are there open source components in there? Good. Are you planning to make your modifications available as open source? Actually, that's now almost mandatory. And are you willing to? So we have a bunch of questions.
0: Nice. And talking about things that already existed, or even gems, uh, the open source observatory, the Oser that you also have been involved in, has been around for a lot longer than the OSPO. How will that fit in with the OSPO? And how will that continue to exist?
2: Yeah, so uh, the commission has so many people that are interested uh, in open source, and that are keenly aware of the uh, strategic long-term advantages of open source, uh, the whole discussion around digital or technological sovereignty, that is not only taking place with digit, but it takes place in a lot of other projects. And so the OZOR, the observatory, is it's one of the mechanisms that the commission often puts in place when it wants to know what's going on in the member states on a certain topic. And the OZOR has been particularly successful in that it has been running for at least 16 years now, if not longer. Actually, it started in 2003, so somebody should do the math quickly.
0: Going on 19.
2: Trying to just keep a tab on what's going on in the member states. And the member states really enjoyed the OZOR um, and its precursor, the OZOR, because it it would keep them a bit to the topic. Every now and then, the OZOR would visit this country and start asking questions about, so where is what and uh, what is the city of Amsterdam doing, or uh, what's happening in Copenhagen, or uh, tell me about the national laws in France and so on. And uh, it started collecting this information. It's all these little point observations. But over 14 years, you get quite a lot of point observations. You start seeing real trends. And I was very, very lucky to do a lot of the work at the OSOR, at the observatory part. Extremely lucky.
0: It's certainly been useful over, over time.
2: So I think I didn't answer the question, but I need to know what the question <laughs> is. Somebody
0: so I, I was thinking a little bit like, how will it coexist with the OSPO?
2: Ah yeah. So, okay. So we're, hmm, how will it coexist? There is no must in there, right? So they can easily live in parallel, but that will never happen because the OSPO is trying to reach out to everybody in the commission that's doing things with free and open source software, trying to help strengthen the already present community. And OZOR is an important uh, part of that. So uh, OZOR looks... Uh, very much at the member states. So not so much at what happens in and around the commission, um, but they're doing things that are extensions of the of the the Fossa 2 project, for example. Um, they're helping us at the moment with uh, an inventory of the catalogs of software solutions or the repositories of source code. So there are many points where we can cooperate or collaborate and where we have contact with the project officers there and the, uh, the people that are running these uh, programs. And we'll figure it out. We'll, we'll know. I, it, I don't know.
1: We don't have to merge, but it could be fun. I was thinking a bit more about like your day-to-day work. Like what do you do in this Ospo all day? I don't know. Like what are the things that happen uh, on a regular basis?
2: So I hope
1: i had made that clear.
2: So I'm, I'm chasing quite a number of people around the commission. That's maybe not the nicest way to say it. I'm following up. Uh, on uh, a bunch of long-term things that we're trying to shift. So, as I said, we have our governance team where we're in touch with them to make sure that their questions to new projects and when they are re-evaluating existing projects say the right things about open source. We have several inventories of projects where we're trying to make sure that they are checked for security holes. They are okay with the standards that we want to apply to commission-led projects. And in, in that series of steps, we're now inserting open source as well. So we're making a sort of a compliance grid in which open source all of a sudden is a column. And most projects will say, uh-oh, we're not there yet at all. I mean, we have switched to sharing our code with all our colleagues, that's step one, but we don't have an open source license. We have no plans. Our business owner or our business decision maker or the system owner hasn't even thought about it, but we'll start asking questions. And so we're doing that. There's quite a bit of paperwork involved in getting the next step that follows out of the decision from December uh, to put that in place, to organize that we are ready for that next step. And uh, yeah, you'll be surprised the amount of um, requests for assistance that you get. We're now working with two or three projects to help them understand how it will be possible for them to move from a closed internal EC project to become a complete open source project. Um, they have questions from everything, from, okay, what license? Uh, where do I register? Uh, what is this IPR thing that you want me to do? Um, but how do I get the security code thing arranged? Um, who do I call? To, okay, so good, but now uh, the powers that be want us to set up a document that is, describes how we're going to make sure that this thing will live long-term. So help us with the governance of our open source project. So And then we were reading and we're in touch with... Um, with the foundation for the code. We're in touch with the uh, the Ospozong, for example. And they also have excellent references on that. And we're trying to study those documents to make sure we can translate them internally. That's enough to keep me busy. Uh-huh.
0: And to make Boris' question a little bit more specific then, what of this do you find is giving you most meaning or what is most fun for you to do?
2: If that's a personal question, right?
0: It's, uh, yes, a little bit more personal than just listing it.
2: I really enjoy working in the international mix that is the european commission it's really it's super fun i find the the organization is super respectful uh, under most uh, uh, conditions in most situations and um, digit is a very horizontal organization so it's easy to reach out to people even if you know if you've never met them and i'm from my work as a as a journalist at the ozor not really afraid to call people out of the blue so uh, actually I enjoy that so uh, I do it quite a bit to uh and explode a bunch of questions on their heads and then see what happens and um, and you get so much energy out of the enthusiasm from from people working they are from everywhere across the EU and it's a lot of fun so um that's really that's I don't know that's why I jump out of bed swinging and uh let's get let's get going it's really super I can recommend it to everybody who likes that kind of uh, who likes that kind of environment it's it's really exhilarating. So that was the personal part, but I think we're actually starting to make a bit of a difference. So we, we have this communication. Okay, that was nice, a lot of, lot of words, um, but this decision from December really changed. We changed something, okay? So we make new rules, which is weird because I don't really like rules, but we make new rules that dissolved old rules. That was cool. So now we have less rules. That's new. That's Makes it easier for people to do open source. And, and some of the open source people in the commission are like, okay, yay
1: so if other public administrations are listening to your wild enthusiasm about uh, being a part of an ospo like if another public administration is starting an ospo do you have some advice for them
2: around the eu um a lot of them actually already have OSPo. there is an ospo in france you interviewed uh, bastien guerry who is basically now the head of the french ospo it has a different name there's an OSPO about to be officially, no, I think it has been officially announced in Germany. There is an OSPO basically in Italy, Team Digitale, with you whom you've also spoken in an earlier uh, uh, podcast here. And um, there's basically one in Sweden. There, it's, you can almost say there's one in the Netherlands. It's you know, it's t- it's starting to take shape. There's one in, in Bulgaria. I'm sure we'll find one in uh, Portugal soon. There is probably, there actually is already one at CTT in Spain. You know, it has a different focus, but uh, it will happen. There's definitely one in Estonia, so there's lots of activity in Finland. It's it's really it's starting to spring up, and they all have different names because they all have different accents to make in the in in the activities they want to achieve. So, and they don't all need to be called an Ospo. Call. It's just a name.
1: I really like your uh, attitude that this open source thing is is going to happen regardless. No, it, it and, uh, Boris,
2: I you know um, you. Don't, I challenge everybody to stop using open source right now. If they really don't like it, well, then stop <laughs> yeah. using it. And then they will not be able to do anything. Can't start your car, can't make coffee, can't watch TV, can't make a phone call, can't use your Android phone. Forget your Apple.
0: I think this stream will break if we stop using it.
2: It's not, it's not going to be possible. Stop using the internet. So. Yeah. It's everywhere. And um, you just now need to realize it and then say, okay, so it's there. And now how do we manage it? A bit like that. And um, governments are always somewhat behind the industry. The industry is still using a lot of all over the place, right? And it makes total sense because it's so much cheaper. You let everybody else do your work and then you just say, okay, we've done this fantastic product, can you please buy it? So there's a, maybe a bit of an evil trend. Um, but you see, you see many companies have a very mature way of dealing with it. Siemens, Bosch, Nokia, Orange, SAP, so you know, in Europe, it's, it's fine. That, that study that DG Connect uh, published in September 6th, I think it was last year, um, that showed the competitive power of open source and the, and the actual, the financial contribution it made to the European economy. The numbers are really just there. There I'm not worried. I don't think you can erase open source anymore. And in the public sector, only the ones that are super stubborn and really don't like it for some reason. But, sorry, that train has really left the station they better get on board. No, actually, they should run for the So,
0: (laughs) I think with that positive note, uh, we go to the last question that we always ask. Which person would you like to see on this podcast after you being interviewed by us?
2: You said you were going to ask me that question. So there are so many cool people in Europe that I would love to hear more from that I have spoken with in my years at the Open Source Observatory that I haven't been under a mandate to speak with, since I no longer work for the Open Source Observatory, and, uh, but that do super interesting things. And I think you should maybe reach out first to the budding Open Source Program Office of Sweden. It's the organization that does Open Source and Open Data, NOSAD. And uh, I would recommend you speak to Maria Dahlhagen there. But if you, for some reason, don't want to, I have a list, it's like,
1: that's like 15 people right I, there.
0: That's an excellent recommendation.
1: That doesn't mean that we don't want to receive your list. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
0: no, we, we plan to continue this. Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> but it's yeah. Well, You know, it's interesting to talk. For example, so Sweden is. I think it's a good country to be in touch with. Uh, there's very interesting things happening in Denmark. But you already spoke with OS two. But you wanna you wanna and you have a you did a podcast with people. The first one was with somebody from Barcelona. But you also want to look at uh, at the Basque Country or the Biscaya uh, Council. It's small and it's it's not you know it's not it's not big, but they're really interesting what they do there, and it's it's going in all directions and taking taking over public sector there. So, and they have good they have good ideas on how this how this works, long term, short term, how this how switching to an open source driven public sector actually contributes to the local economy. That's what the Basque Country always has shown, uh, like France, by the way and how you save money in the public sector, but you actually are growing your local industry. Something once we're allowed to travel again, uh, you should definitely travel to the Canarian Islands to do the interviews there, because that set of islands is totally overrun by companies that are depending on tourism. And now the lockdown has shown that's maybe not a good idea. But in the past, they had a CEO that said, let's just do more open source because we'll get an industry on our islands that can help us with these tools, instead of having people fly in from Madrid. Good thoughts.
0: Yeah, a lot of good suggestions. Thanks for that. I'm looking forward to to the list. And this has been a very nice chat, but uh, it's time to wrap it up.
2: Well, it was as I said, I'm surprised I spoke for an hour. I'm sorry. But um...
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's why we do this. We are always surprised, pleasantly.
1: Yeah, and, and I hope we have more to talk about in the future. I would like to end by saying that the work that the
2: Foundation for Public Code is doing is helping us at this moment. At Ozor I reported on, on you guys starting to become super active, but now I'm actually applying your, uh, your guidelines. They're on my desk almost every day because I have to go,
1: oh, yeah, that's, how, that's what they should do. So it makes my life a little bit easier.
0: Thank
1: you. It's a very nice incredible to... uh, incredible endorsement as well. Thank you, yeah. You're welcome. Yeah. Well, it's been great talking to you, uh, Gijs. Thank you for uh, all of your time. Thank you. You're welcome. And uh, to the rest of our audience also um, wrapping up, I hope you've enjoyed our live cast and i would like to remind you that the audio version of this podcast will go out in a day or two Uh, so you can subscribe to the podcast at podcast.publiccode.net and tell all your friends that they should subscribe Uh, after you've heard these great things that Gijs has said uh, there might be some people you want to send this podcast to so they can go listen to it
0: yeah and if you want to like join us live next time and join the chat, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can also watch all of our previous episodes.
1: Yeah. And uh, the Let's Talk About Public Code podcast will be back with a new episode in uh, in about a month.
0: And if you want to engage in even more interactive sessions, you can join us in our community calls, which you can sign up for in the link in the footer of our website at publiccode.net. And that's all for today. Bye bye.